Hello, and welcome to the Dr. Frankavilla Show. I'm your host, Dr. Carolyn Frankavilla, board-certified family physician and diplomate of the American Board of Obesity Medicine. I've been helping patients lose weight to treat and prevent medical problems for the last 10 years, and I'm taking what I've learned from them to you. In this podcast, you will learn the science behind why you struggle with your weight and what to do about it, tips for common challenges, work to fight bias about what a healthy weight really is, and improve your relationship with food and your body. Please remember that while I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. This podcast is meant to be informational in nature only, not medical advice. Please seek out care from your physician for your specific needs. Okay, let's get started. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Dr. Frankavilla Show. Today, we are talking about something that is long overdue, which is the topic of diabetes, specifically type 2 diabetes, which is the most common form of diabetes. We're going to talk about the relationship between diabetes, obesity, and weight, and why it's so strong that some people actually refer to them together as diabetes. Today, I have a expert guest with me, Dr. Harold Bays, to discuss the relationship between diabetes and weight, and partially why it is so hard for people with type 2 diabetes to lose weight. Dr. Harold Bays is a board-certified endocrinology and internal medicine physician, as well as a diplomate of the American Board of Obesity Medicine. He has served as an investigator for over 600 phase one through phase four clinical trials regarding treatments for obesity, dyslipidemia, diabetes, hypertension, and other metabolic and hormonal disorders. Dr. Bayes is the chief science officer for the Obesity Medicine Association and the editor-in-chief of Obesity Pillars, which is the journal of the Obesity Medicine Association. So when I say we have an expert here today, like this is an expert. So thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Bayes. Well, thank you for having me, Carolyn. Tell me um, how you got involved in in treating obesity and and why you enjoy treating obesity and being part of that. Um, I guess I would have to say it's because uh, I'm an endocrinologist. And even though obesity is really recognized as a uh, full-fledged disease only in about the past decade or so, I think most of us in endocrinology anyway recognize that it isn't just that uh, the people had the obesity and then, oh, by the way, they just happened to get diabetes, hypertension, and dyslipidemia. I think we figured out pretty quick that, in fact, it was the increase in body fat and all of the immunopathies and the endocrinopathies, in other words, the inflammation and the hormonal adverse consequences of the increase in body fat that uh, both directly and indirectly contributed to, again, things like the diabetes and hypertension and abnormal uh, lipid levels like your triglycerides or your cholesterol and such. And, and you would take it one step further and say that it didn't take long to figure out that it was also contributing to heart disease and to cancer and to fatty liver and a million other things. And we're not even talking about the fat mass consequences of the stress on the joints and sleep apnea and such. So Look, obesity is just a multifactorial disease. I, I tend to gravitate towards treating the cause of disease rather than the the consequences of disease. So I think just that frame of thinking, it only makes a lot of sense to start to treat obesity first, in many cases, to treat obesity first. 
Right. Yeah. I love that description. It's the root cause, right? Of so many things. It's not, you, you've you kind of said this before, it's not a coincidence that these things all go together, yeah. right? They're all yeah. related. And so we can try to reduce your chance of a heart attack and treat your diabetes and treat your sleep apnea and treat all these separate things, or we can work towards what are the underlying metabolic disruptions uh, that that we're going to help solve all of those things at once. So it's kind of like the low hanging fruit sometimes, right? Like what is the, the big overarching things? So let's talk about what diabetes is. I'm often surprised when I get a new patient in my clinic and they've had type two diabetes for a while, they've been on medication and no one ever explained what diabetes was to them. And most people, when they first have diabetes, don't often feel very sick. So it's sort of this, you know, nebulous, what do I have? Why do I need to be on a medicine? Why do I need to do anything? So can you explain like to a patient, what is type two diabetes? Well, sure. I think most people recognize that at its core, uh, diabetes is an increase in blood sugars, okay? An increase in blood sugars beyond uh, what is considered normal. But that's only really scratching the surface, isn't it? Diabetes is much more than that. And it all goes back to, again, the increase in body fat. How did you get the diabetes? Well, clearly genetics plays a role. And then as people get older, the, the blood sugars tend to go up as well. And all those things are true, but it's also true that an increase in, in body fat and the increase in the hormonal abnormalities that take place and the increase in the inflammation that takes place with what we call sick fat, okay? As your fat cells become large, they just don't work. They don't work like they used to. And as a result, your body no longer responds to insulin. So it's, it's that lack of response or relative lack of response to insulin, which contributes to something we call insulin resistance, right? In other words, you're resistant to the effects of insulin. So insulin drives down blood sugars. If you're resistant to that, that means your blood sugars may go high. And then over time, uh, particularly if you don't address the underlying cause, and particularly if you don't get treated early, it ends up being it's not just a resistance to insulin, but in fact, the the cells of your pancreas that make insulin, they start not to work either. So you end up with the worst scenario, which is not only you're not making enough insulin, but you're resistant to the insulin that you're making. So, so the best advice I think I would have for folks with the type two diabetes mellitus or at risk for type two diabetes mellitus is get on it early, get it treated early, treat the underlying cause early, because I, I think you're going to have much better outcomes uh, taking that approach rather than say, I'm just going to wait till I'm on death's door before I start aggressively getting this treated. I think that's a bad plan. Yeah. And I saw so much of that in my training, which is part of why I became so passionate for this field. People who had in-stage renal disease and were on dialysis, people who had lost limbs, people who were really sick from having diabetes that had not been adequately treated early on. And so, you know, that was my passion going into this is can I prevent heart attacks and I can kind of keep people out of the hospital um, by treating the underlying causes of diabetes. I think one thing that's worth pointing out is there is this relationship between fat, body fat, 
and diabetes, but it's so different from person to person, right? And so some people based on genetics and ethnicity and, and other factors that I don't think we quite always know will end up getting type two diabetes, even though they don't have that high of a BMI, they don't have that much extra body weight. And then sometimes we see people who have quite high uh, body weights, quite high fat mass, and they don't have diabetes and they don't have high blood sugar at all. And so you know, it's going to be individual who's at risk as well. And I think it's important that we realize that why weight is contributing to that. There's no definite weight at which for, for everyone it's too much, right? For some people, you know, they gain 15 pounds, all of a sudden they have type two diabetes. And then we meet people who weigh 300 pounds and they're fine. They don't have type two diabetes. So, you know, very individual who ends up getting type two diabetes. Yeah. You, you packed a lot of stuff in there. <laughs> Okay, so first, uh, let me just say this. I, I, I like your point where you say people wait too long to get treated and such, where I find that to be um, a real challenge is people that come in and they say, uh, see if you've heard this. You know, the reason I don't want to go on insulin is because, uh, you know, I had a relative, my mom or whatever. My mom didn't have kidney failure or heart attack or anything until she started taking insulin. And the minute she took insulin, now her kidneys are shot and she's got a heart attack and she's got ulcers on her legs that won't heal and might need an amputation and such. So, you know, I'm not taking that insulin, you know, not realizing that it's because they waited so long to start the insulin, right? That you're in the late stage of the diabetes melanin. So it's, it's not so much that it's the, it's not at all that it's the start of the insulin that caused the problem. It's the fact waited so long to the point where you needed insulin. Uh, yes. So you know, insulin, I think is intimidating because yeah. you have to inject it and you really have to monitor your blood sugar on it because you can get too low. It, it is a little harder for medication, but even metformin, which is a really, you know, safe, easy medication to take. I hear patients say the same thing like, oh, well, you know, they didn't really get sick until they were on metformin. No, it was probably the other way around, right? They waited until they, or their treatment team, right? It's not necessarily the patient's fault. We sometimes make this mistake in medicine where we wait too long to start things. And it wasn't the medicine that caused the problems. It was delaying starting the medicine. Right. I, I say there's an alternative definition for insulin resistance, and that is the resistance of clinicians to prescribe the insulin is a form of insulin resistance. So, so I agree with you. The, the long and short of it is this, uh, early detection, early treatment, you're going to be better off. Okay. Yeah. So let's put that to bed there. Okay. The other thing is you mentioned that, um, what is it with the folks so, you know, some folks, they have just modest increase in body fat, yet they have the diabetes or maybe hypertension, dyslipidemia or whatever. And then on the other hand, you get other people where sometimes it takes a great deal more of the increase in body fat before they get these complications. And here's where I think it's critical for people to understand. Many times it's not the amount of the body fat that you have, it's the functionality of the fat that you have. It's the functionality of the cells, your fat cells and such. And as I mentioned, if your fat cells become too enlarged, they become dysfunctional and such. So you need to be really on the lookout. That's the reason, as you know, we we try to categorize people as, do they have the fat mass disease? In other words, do they just have so much body weight that it's, it's hurting their knees, okay? Or it's causing sleep apnea, or is it just the mass of the fat that's the problem? Uh, and then you got this other category, what we call sick fat disease, or what 
as you know, the, the adiposopathy, the pathos of adipose tissue, and, and that sick fat. Uh, again, there's this inflammation and there's these hormone abnormalities that take place that all contribute to things like the diabetes and the high blood pressure and the abnormal cholesterol and the heart disease and the cancer and, and a million other things. So, so how do we sort that all out? Well, one of the first things we can do that I think makes a lot of sense is why don't we get the diagnosis right? You know, that's always a good start. And one of the things I don't think we do near enough are what we call body composition analyses. So it, here our research site, and we have a thing we kind of do on the side here. We have people that come in and they just get what's called dual X-ray absorptiometry or DEXA scan. Probably people have heard of that. Uh, but you can do bioelectrical impedance or other types of things. And what you get there is you get the percent body fat. And at least with the DEXA, you also get the amount of muscle mass and such. So many times we've seen people come in and, you know, I don't want to get things riled up here or whatever, but um, I don't get on a soapbox, but this does seem to happen disproportionately to women where we'll have women will come in and they'll have an increase in body mass index, their weight, according to their height. And their clinician will tell them that they're overweight. And fortunately, most of them have been really good about it because they get it. And they come in and said, I was told I was overweight and I know it's not true, but it, you know, why don't you just for peace of mind, why don't you get a body composition? And sure enough, their percent body fat is very, very low, but they have an increase in muscle. Yeah, that's so what we like just, to see, right? Yeah. yeah, and I mean, of course, that's what you, you want, particularly uh, women that are at risk for uh, what we call sarcopenia. In other words, diminished muscle mass because those people are also those women are also susceptible to osteoporosis which you don't want that either so we want to encourage resistance training we want to encourage increase of muscle mass and for somebody to be told that somehow what they're doing is wrong because they're doing that just because some chart tells them that their weight is too high is just wrong so what i would say is before getting engaged in even the functionality Let's get the diagnosis right, because as as many of your listeners probably know, a lot of times it it really matters where that fat's located. And if it's yeah. located in the around the the organs of the innards of your body, what we call visceral fat, well, that's not good. That's associated with the diabetes and high blood pressure and abnormal lipids and heart disease and such. And so, you know, we don't want that. But you're right. Certain races, for example, so for example, blacks will often have decrease in visceral fat as opposed to white individuals, particularly women, you know, female individuals often have diminished visceral fat compared to males. So it's all very confusing if you don't have the proper diagnosis. So I guess the first thing that I would say is before doing anything, get the diagnosis right. Yeah, I love that. And I preach that a lot on my podcast, which is people can be healthy at different weights, right? BMI is a screening tool. It's it's kind of the best thing we have in most clinics right now. Most places don't have DEXA. Most places don't have bioelectrical impedance, but they do have BMI. So it's a screening tool, right? But it does not mean that it's the end of the story, right? So we need to know the muscle mass. We need to know the body fat percentage. And the flip side can be true as well, right? I see also with often my postmenopausal females that they um, have no muscle mass. 
right? And so their BMI is not actually that high. Their BMI is like 27, 26, sometimes even 25. It's like technically normal. But when we use the bioelectrical impedance, they have no muscle mass and they have a lot of visceral fat and they do have obesity based on that criteria because they don't have any muscle mass. Their, their weight is not muscle at all. And so I agree, like getting the diagnosis correct is really important to determine an individual's health risk based on their weight because BMI, it's, it's just a screening tool and it really is not telling us the entire story. And then same thing with blood sugar, right? So I also see this in my clinic, which is that there's been these warning signs, right? People will come back with a high fasting blood sugar for years. They will come back with an elevated A1C. It's not at the diabetes range yet, but it's not a normal A1C. And no one has told them to do anything yet, right? There's been no advice. We wait for that A1C to get to the diabetes range before all of a sudden we're offering a medication or offering nutrition or exercise advice or sending them to a dietitian. And there's years that we could have been intervening beforehand to prevent that diabetes diagnosis. Well, that's exactly right. So it goes back to what I was saying before. You just got to get the diagnosis right on all fronts. Yeah. Uh, now, one of the things you can do, you say, well, not everybody's got access to the DEXAs, whatever. You can get a tape measure and put it around somebody's waist, right? That you can do. That doesn't cost anything. Right. I mean, you can go to the dollar store and get a tape measure. So there are things that can be done to assess the, uh, what we call, pathogenic potential. In other words, the ill health potential of where it is you're laying down the body fat and around the waist is, you know, that's pretty good surrogate measure. Yeah. Uh, Clarify. So we're talking about doing a waist circumference with a tape measure. You may have one at home. You can get one for a couple of dollars if you don't. And usually our cutoff, you know, that we will use is for women, 35 inches is considered a risk factor and for men, 40. And so that's something, if you're not quite sure, you know, if you believe the BMI for yourself and you don't have access to other tools, a simple waist circumference can help know, is your weight more of a concern or or is it okay? Right. And then the other thing I would just say, because you hear people say this, well, as long as my blood works okay, then I guess... The weight that I have is, even though it's increased, and even may, maybe my waist circumference is increased, that must mean I'm one of those people where the body weight doesn't matter. And I, I would just strongly disagree with that because one of the variables that people seem to omit uh, when they say this, or if you go on the YouTube and you hear people talk about it or whatever, the metric that people seem to omit is chronology. Okay, is time. Because what it means is maybe today you're okay, but within two to five, certainly 10 years, if you do have an increase in body fat, then you have an increased risk of developing these complications. So it may appear that today you're okay, but let's just go to the example you talked about. Today, you have an increase in some of your blood work that suggests you might have what we call pre-diabetes. In other words, it's not high enough for diabetes, but the blood sugars are high enough where it's it's knocking on the door, right? It's coming. And so what do you do with that information? Well, like I said, one option is to say, I'm good today and I'll worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow, I would discourage that. I would say that if somebody's giving you a warning shot, a good time to get started on that would be either now or yesterday, right? I mean, 
let's move on these things and not wait until you have the diabetes and the hypertension and the abnormal cholesterol and the heart attack and the cancer and all these things. Why wait? Let, let's address the underlying issues now for many patients, not all, many patients has to do with increase in body fat. So one of the things that I've always seen with type 2 diabetes is that it's much harder for my patients with type 2 diabetes to, to lose weight. And one example that really stood out to me was I had a husband and wife couple who came in and they kind of started the same nutrition plan, started the same exercise, and, and they were both total rock stars. They got totally in the groove with their lifestyle plan. And the wife was just like losing weight great. And the husband had type two diabetes and his weight loss was very minimal. Although everything else was getting better, his blood sugar, how he felt, everything else. And that's usually not the dynamic we see. When I've worked with couples before, usually men lose weight much easier than women. And so I have to explain to him like, you know, type two diabetes makes it much harder to lose weight. You're not doing anything wrong. Like that's just part of having type two diabetes in many cases. And you wrote a, a great article for our obesity pillars journal where we talk, where you talk about why type two diabetes makes it harder to lose weight. Can you explain some of the reasons why it is harder oftentimes for someone with type two diabetes to lose weight? Yeah. So this is, it's interesting. This is a question I get asked a lot, like at academic conferences and such. And as with most things in science, some of the answers are pretty simple. I know people don't like the simple answers, but there are simple explanations. So the first thing is, uh, if you have the diabetes and your blood sugars are high, then many times what you'll do is you'll urinate out those calories. Like you'll have what we call glucose in the urine, right? Some people, that's how they used to check to see if their blood sugars are under control. They used to do urine strips and check the urine for glucose, well, those are calories that you're urinating. If anybody on your program has the diabetes, they know that if blood sugars are really poorly controlled, people tend to lose weight. Well, that's not a great way to lose weight, right? It's not a healthful way to lose weight. So what happens is, is once you get the blood sugars under better control, right, then you conserve those calories. So instead of urinating them out, now you're conserving them. So having weight reduction is great, but it also means uh, that now you're no longer urinating out a lot of these calories and you're conserving them so they get they stay within the body and could be potentially stored as fat. So that's fighting against you. The next thing is if you have the type 2 diabetes mellitus, early in the disease, as we talked about before, your insulin levels will be high because we call that insulin resistance. And when you have an increase in insulin levels, that drives blood sugars and such into your fat cells and promotes the deposition of fat. So as you start to lose weight and you have less insulin resistance, then all that extra insulin that you have is going to be driving uh, more fat deposition, making it more difficult for you to lose weight. The other thing is, is if you're not having your blood sugar medications adjusted, during a weight loss program, which a lot of times people don't do, then what ends up happening is people end up having low blood sugars. And if they have low blood sugars, what are they going to do? They're going to eat. I mean, it's just contrary to a weight reduction program to say, well, I'm going to lose weight to the point that I get low blood sugars, then I'm going to eat to make up for the low blood sugars. 
Yeah. That's that's an endless circle that's going nowhere. And, and even right? separate just, from medications, I've seen that with people who've had the higher blood sugars for a while. And then now the blood sugars are normalizing because of their diet and nutrition plan, no. but they can get uncomfortable with those lower blood sugars, right? And so if no, they've been living no. at a blood sugar of 150, 170, and now their blood sugar is 90, which is a great, healthy, normal blood sugar, that can feel uncomfortable. They can feel like they have low blood sugar, even though it's where we want it. And so then they feel like they need to eat some sugar. And then, like you said, it's this chicken and an egg, right? Where you're, you're getting the lower blood sugars, but then you don't feel good. And so you eat. And so you're not really making that, that progress with weight loss. Yeah. And I don't want to discourage people, but that's especially true at the very beginning. Uh, and where people get really tripped up is, um, you know, say, like you said, they're used to blood sugars in the 300 range or whatever. If they drop their blood sugars rapidly to a blood sugar of 100, which is normal, right? Sometimes they may very well feel like they're having a low blood sugar reaction, right? So sometimes the rate of drop and the extent of the drop. So over time, that will get better. But you're right. Early on, that's tough. And then yeah. the last one, at least on this first you know, panel that we're talking about, the one that just drives me the most crazy is is there are medications that people take for the diabetes that increase body fat, right? So if I say, for example, there's a, I don't want to get too complicated, but it is a drug we call thiazolamine dions or TZDs or the peroxisome proliferator activated receptor gamma, you know, agents and whatever. These are a class of drugs that they work by adding functional fat cells. So if you're in a, Weight reduction program, probably not your best choice for your diabetes. Uh, an example of that would be the rosiglitazone. Other ones would be the insulin. And insulin's tough because if, if you're on insulin, it's probably because the other things you tried didn't work out. But if you're getting aggressively getting engaged in a weight reduction program, at the minimum, you should have the insulin dose reduced. Okay. And then finally, the one that just is perplexing are the saponiureas. Uh, there are, look, I get it. They're cheap. Probably don't even require a copay, but that doesn't mean they're good for you. So one of the things that I spent a lot of time doing, particularly in, in folks with the diabetes who I'm trying to get in a weight reduction program is just whatever I can conceivably possibly do to stop the saponiurea. Okay. There's just a whole lot of reasons for that. We don't have time to go into, but, uh, at least for this discussion, it increases the amount of insulin that's made from the pancreas. Bad, bad plan if you're trying to get engaged in a weight reduction program. Increases the risk of low blood sugar, increases insulin levels, drives calories into fat cells, no proven cardiovascular disease benefits. Um, you know, not good. I understand it's less expensive. And for a lot of patients, uh, that's what they need. But But if you're specifically asking about what sort of drugs do you need to think about that treat diabetes in folks that are in a weight reduction program? Get rid of the savonarias. I mean, you you tell me. I mean, what, what do you do? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm a huge fan of of the GLP medications of our incretins. And so when possible, you know, if there's coverage or those medications are affordable, shifting from diabetes meds that we know make it harder to lose weight or even cause weight gain 
two medications that are likely to help with weight loss, like our, you know, our Manjaro's, our Ozempic, our Trulicities, um, as well as our SGTL2s, right? Our, our Jardiances and medications like that, that, that have additional health benefits and can help make it easier to lose weight. And so I think that if someone is, has type two diabetes and has been struggling with their weight, visiting with their physician and really making sure they're on sort of the newer medications that have additional health benefits and also can lead to weight loss is is a worthwhile discussion to have because the the best meds 10 years ago are different than the best meds now for type 2 diabetes right like we we've come a really long way it's a really exciting time um and and if you've been on the same meds for 10 years like it it may be time to revisit what you're on even if you've been on the same meds for 5 years yeah. And I mean, I would just say, I don't, I don't want to make this like an over versus new situation here. I mean, look, there's loraglutide has been around a long time, right? Yeah. Now it's not as, it's a, one of the drugs you mentioned, what we call GLP-1 receptor agonist and not as effective in weight reduction as, as some of the newer medications and such, but been around a while, has cardiovascular disease benefits, heart disease benefits. <clears throat> Pretty soon, my guess is it's, at least for the diabetes, it's going to be generic. Yeah. So, so there are options that are available yeah. out there that aren't just the most expensive drugs out there. They, so I, I agree with you. The long and short of it is just to talk to your clinician and say, are the medicines I'm taking my diabetes helping with weight loss or are they contributing to weight gain and, and go through them? I, I think that's a worthwhile conversation. The next group of things to help explain why it is that people with diabetes have difficulty losing weight is number one, once you have the diabetes mellitus, oftentimes people are going to be older, right? People are going to be older. It's more difficult for people who are older to, to, to lose weight than people who are younger. One of the reasons why is, it's going back to what you said before, many times if people, as they get older, if they're not continuously engaged in physical activity and resistance training and that sort of thing, even though their body weight may not change that much, they have an increasing percent of body fat because their muscles is going down, right? So again, just simply because many of the patients with the diabetes mellitus are older, that by itself is going to make it more difficult for weight reduction. And then there are things that there's also maybe some difference depending upon the, the sex of the patient, how well they might respond to drugs. For example, it's interesting that there's some evidence that the GLP-1 receptor agonist that you talked about may work better than women in women. Yeah. So I find that to be interesting. Then there's genetics. You know, you ha if you have genetics that's driving both the obesity and the type 2 diabetes mellitus, then one can conceive that might make it tougher for weight reduction as well. As if, you, if you have this, you know, this genetic predisposition headed your way. And then, then I guess the other thing I would say is um, just because you treat somebody with a drug for their, either their weight, or the diabetes, you know, maybe there's uh, specific things that are going on with the people whose increase in body weight has gone so far as to cause the diabetes mellitus with regard to meal planning or socioeconomic factors or psychosocial factors or bias and discrimination. Unless you're addressing the whole patient. I mean, if, if your approach is to simply say, here's a pill or here's an injection, well, you've kind of missed out on what could be major contributors to to impediments with regard to weight reduction and improvement in blood sugars 
And I think you got to look at the whole patient. I mean, Karen, you're a well-known advocate and such uh, for patients. I mean, what's your sense about the role of socioeconomic factors and psychological factors and bias Absolutely. and discrimination? I mean, how much of a role does that play in, in your patients? Yeah, huge. I mean, you know, I, I find that half the time I end up being my patients almost like their therapist, right? Because there is so much in terms of stress, in terms of letting go of bias and stigma, letting go of shame. And stress cannot be underestimated as well, right? So, so stress, which can be physiologic, right? From sleep apnea, but also just stress from other things in life, trauma, socioeconomic status, a stressful job, a newborn baby, lots of different stressors that people have. And that sometimes makes or breaks the difference between how people are able to lose weight as well. That's the hardest thing for me to fix for people, right? I can give people nutrition plans, exercise plans, but relieving stress, relieving um, socioeconomic burdens is, is not something I can do, but I can recognize them and make them part of the treatment plan, right? And so I think that, that that's important. We have to look at the whole story. And that's where I think we can get in trouble if we blame just one thing right? If we blame just food, if we blame just lack of exercise, if we blame just the medicine you're on or not on, right? There is so many different layers to how we treat weight and how we treat diabetes as well. And again, if you're not working with someone who's helping you with all of those different facets, like maybe it's time to find someone who who can help look at that, that whole picture. Right. Or how about this? At least bring up the topic. Yeah. Right. At least discuss it with them. Right. You know, sometimes they're like, well, you know, maybe that is uh, important and, and maybe that'll spark some potential solutions and such. But 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 I think it. But anyway, within the context of um, this conversation, you know, why is it that the people with type two might have more difficulty with weight reduction? If you again, if you've reached the point where you've developed the type two diabetes mellitus, maybe you got other things going on. Yeah. that um, may not be happening to people who don't have the diabetes. And yeah. then finally, I guess I would say that, that people with the diabetes have complications that, that that shouldn't be dismissed. I mean, things like musculoskeletal you know, abnormalities, uh, non-traumatic, many of our patients have non-traumatic, whether it be ulcerations or amputations and such, and so, or decrease in muscle mass. Well, obviously that's going to make it more difficult to engage in physical activity, you can still do it. Right, neuropathy makes it yeah, really neuropathy. for people to to walk or or even safely do certain types of exercise if you have significant neuropathy. Or and, and when you say neuropathy, we're not just talking about the neuropathy of your legs, but there maybe there's um, a central nervous system maladaptations and such. What about heart disease? Diabetes is a major contributor to to heart, you know heart attacks and such. So if a person's had a heart attack, it's probably going to be harder for them to lose weight than somebody who hadn't had a heart attack. Or what about vascular disease of the legs? People probably have seen people who have had uh, problems with the blood flow that goes to their legs. That's going to make it hard to exercise. What about lung disease? What about, you talked about it, sleep apnea. You know, what about that? And then finally, there's things, you know, the we talked about the inflammation or maybe a person can't see so well. Maybe that impedes their ability to engage in physical activity or the foot ulcers we talked about or whatever. And then and then finally, I would say, uh, in addition to the hormone abnormality of increased insulin that we talked about, in men, people with the overweight and the obesity, and especially with the type 2 diabetes mellitus, you combine those, 
testosterone levels go down. So that's going to maybe decrease your muscle mass in men. So, and your energy, so right? Your, your, your stamina, your ability oh. to go exercise for sure. So I think I'll kind of summarize by saying if you have type 2 diabetes and you have been frustrated that it's harder to lose weight, know that it's not in your head. It's not you. There's real biologic and other reasons why that that has been true. It's not just you. And if you have those early warning signs or risk factors for diabetes, let's do something about that now. Let's not wait till you get diabetes because then it's going to be even harder to solve the problem. So I think that's kind of where I'll wrap up. And Dr. Bayes, thank you so much for your tremendous insights on this. I can't thank you enough for, for being part of this episode. Okay. Thanks for having me. All right. Until next week, take care. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Frankavilla Show, where we learn about all things related to weight and health. If you love this podcast, make sure to leave those five-star reviews and share this podcast with a friend or loved one. If you have a topic about weight and health you want me to tackle, head over to the website, thedrfrankavillashow.com to submit your question. And make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss next week's episode. Take care.